very eager and excited to preach God's Word with you this morning. Uh, I have to be honest, I've been really jealous seeing Ryan up here, because I was like, man, this is just such a cool environment, isn't it? It's just different from the school. Just seeing everybody out here has just been really encouraging and uplifting to me. It's been really neat to be a part of it as well. Whereas the church, we're proclaiming that it's the people that make the church, not the building. So I'm grateful to be here with you all this morning. Now, this is a little bit different for me. I'm used to being all mic'd up, so if I get too quiet, go ahead and give me a little thumbs up or a volume control down there, and I'll know I need to speak a little bit louder. Now, as I'm speaking this loud, my voice probably will crack. And whenever it does, only snickers are allowed, no outwardly laughing and busting out. I ain't got to thumb you know the sermon, I'm just uh, If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to the book of Matthew. That's where we're going to be spending our time today. As you're making your way there, I'm going to go ahead and share a story with you. There's a customs officer, and his job is to patrol the border and look at a shady individual, so to speak, that cross over the border. One day he's performing his duties and he sees an individual that pulls up in a brand new truck, really shiny, really nice and neat. The officer immediately gets suspicious, so he walks up, knocks on the window, and the driver rolls the window down, and the officer says, go ahead and step out of the vehicle, I'm going to search you and your vehicle. So the driver steps out of the vehicle, and then he conducts his search. So this customs officer is searching high and low throughout the vehicle. He's pulling, handling off, he's looking behind the bumper, high and low, behind the seat cushions. But he can find nothing on this guy. Nothing. No contraband, no drugs, no money. Can't find anything that this guy is taking illegally across the border. So reluctantly, he tells the guy, hey, you're free to go. Go ahead and get out of here. So the driver goes off into the distance. Exactly one week later, the exact same driver shows up again in a brand new truck. So the officer once again is suspicious, and he approaches the window, knocks on the window, driver rolls the window down, he says, go ahead and step out of the vehicle, we're going to search again. So once again, the officer searches high and low, searches this guy, searches the truck, and finds nothing on this guy. So he's still suspicious, but he lets the guy go. This continues on and on for years. Every week, this truck driver shows up at the border in a new truck, and he's, he's let go because the officer can not find anything on the guy. This continues for years, and the officer approaches a retirement age. It's his very last day before he is retired. And uh, once again, lo and behold, the same driver shows up to the border. So uh, the officer approaches the window, he knocks on the glass, and the driver rolls the window down. The customs officer says, look, it's my last day. I'm retiring after today. Don't try to deny it. I know you've been smuggling something. I don't know if it's drugs. I don't know if it's cash. I don't know what it is. But I know you've been doing something. Don't try to deny it. However, it is my last day. So if you tell me, you won't get in any trouble at all. And it's driving me crazy. So please just tell me what it is you've been smuggling all these years. And the driver looks at the officer, smiles from ear to ear, and says, Trucks. <laughs> so the entire time, it was blatantly obvious what this guy was smuggling across the border. However, the officer was looking at the minor details. He was trying to find something on him that he thought that the driver would be smuggling. He missed the obvious completely. And oftentimes, we miss the obvious too in our lives, don't we? You guys agree or disagree? You think you miss the obvious often? Okay, uh, let's say, for instance, you're looking through your house and you're trying to find your car keys. You look for about an hour before you check your jacket pocket and realize your keys have been in there the whole time. You miss the obvious. Or perhaps it's whenever we step on the scale every morning, morning after morning, hoping that the numbers will go down whenever we don't work out, or we don't die, we don't do anything, we're just praying, God, please give us a miracle. <laughs> Even though we're not willing to change, we're missing the obvious. 
Guys, perhaps it's whenever you enter in your house and notice something smells quite rank and you're looking around the house and you realize after an hour searching it's you because you've been working all day and you haven't showered yet. Yes, we constantly miss the obvious. We can see this in scripture as well where people miss the obvious. For instance, the Israelites in the desert, right after they were delivered from Egypt by God, were asking, God, are you going to provide for us and protect us? It's clear that he was going to, but they missed the obvious. Another missing the obvious in Scripture is disobedience always comes with a price. When we disobey or whenever we strive away from God, it comes with a price, yet they keep doing it. God's overwhelming patience taken advantage of again and again. His love poured out for us where he's willing to forgive us if we will turn towards him and repent. Yet people keep taking advantage of it, missing the obvious. We can see this time and time again in Scripture, but I believe that there is one group of people that are masters at missing the obvious, and that would be the Pharisees. I want you to think about this. Jesus Christ, God in flesh, right in front of them, and they couldn't see him for what he was. They wouldn't acknowledge him for who he is. Today we're going to be examining the Pharisees in Scripture. It's going to be a little bit different. It's not going to be a topical study, rather right? it's going to be a character study. We're going to be looking at the Pharisees and examining their failures throughout Scripture. But before we begin, I'd like to grasp some context here. Maybe you're like me, whenever you read through Scripture, you were asking, who are these guys? Who are the Pharisees? Why are they like this? Where did they come from? How did they come to be? So in order to answer that question, I'd like to go over a little bit of history before the coming of Christ. So it's 336 B.C. Alexander the Great is dominating the Eastern Mediterranean. He's taken over a nation after nation. Some of these would be, you know, Egypt, Syria, Babylon, Persia. He is just dominating. And after he conquers a nation, he does a process called Hellenization. There's your vocabulary word for the day. It basically means that he's making everything Greek. You see, Alexander the Great is Greek, so he likes making all things Greek. So he would conquer a city or a nation, and he'd start to uh, build Greek architecture. He'd, he'd build Greek temples. He'd push Greek religion onto those that he would conquer. Obviously the Romans come in a little bit later, but it's kind of a state of turmoil whenever two factions arise. And those factions would be the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Sadducees and the Pharisees. Now there are some differences between them. The Sadducees favored Hellenization, meaning that they were okay integrating their culture with the culture that was conquering them. They didn't have any issues shifting or changing. The reason is that they were upper-class politicians and aristocrats, and obviously if you're in politics, you need to be flexible with a nation that's conquering you. You need to be able to adapt. They controlled the priesthood. They believed in the first five books of Pentateuch, so they basically only believed in certain portions of Scripture. They had no belief in the resurrection. They had no belief in immortality of the soul, and they had no belief in the coming Messiah. Now, the reason that Sadducees didn't believe in the coming Messiah because he would have challenged their authority and power. See, the Sadducees were sitting up pretty. They were okay with the position that they were in. They were politicians. They were up the ladder, so to speak. So a coming Messiah would have taken that away from them and challenged them on that, and they didn't want that. So they rejected the coming Messiah. The Pharisees were the other faction. Even the name Pharisees means separatist. It means separate, away from them. They opposed Hellenization, this process. They did not want their culture integrated with another, so they resisted. They were typically made of middle-class lay people. They believed in the authority of Scripture. They held high regard with the authority of Scripture. And as such, they had two goals. 
The first goal was to build a fence around the authority of Scripture. They didn't want anybody imposing onto their ideas, so they wanted to protect it. The second goal was to always derive application from Scripture. There was no gray areas for the Pharisees. They had all the T's crossed and the I's dotted. Whenever God left something as a gray area, the Pharisees were like, no, we're going to have application out of this. And these often developed into oral laws or human traditions that the Pharisees had. They did believe in the resurrection. They did believe in the immortality of the soul. And they also believed in the coming Messiah. However, they were expecting the Messiah to be something uh, that they believed in. So they believed he would be a warrior king and immediately come with a sword and, and deliver them and conquer their enemies. Whenever Jesus wasn't what they thought, they just rejected him. So both the Pharisees and Sadducees were united, however, even though they're different uh, in their rejection of Christ. They rejected Christ. The Sadducees because they didn't want to challenge to their authority, and the Pharisees because Jesus wasn't what they thought he would be. So now we've got a little bit of context to understand where they came from. So how do people view the Pharisees when Christ's ministry began? What was the common uh, conception of them? So if you would, go ahead. We're going to start diving into Scripture now. We're starting in Matthew chapter 3. So if you turn your Bibles, if you have them. And if not, I will be reading these aloud as well. I'm going to stay in the Gospel of Matthew today. We could be bouncing, you know, between all the Gospels, but I figure for time's sake, we're just going to read you. So. Matthew chapter 3. We're going to start here at verse 7. But when John the Baptist saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. John the Baptist referred to the Pharisees as a brood of vipers. Clearly, uh, he did not favor them. Uh, some interpretations, you could take it as uh, offspring of vipers or offspring of Satan, even. Um, either way, John the Baptist did not view the Pharisees in a higher regard. Is John the Baptist credible? Well, this is what Jesus had to say about John. He said, there is none greater that is born of a woman than John the Baptist. He also said that John the Baptist is more than a prophet. So clearly to me, John the Baptist is a credible witness. So whenever he stops his baptism, looks at them, and says, you brood of vipers, and challenges them, it holds a lot of weight to me. So those that were following God, that desired to please God, recognized what the Pharisees were. I want you to imagine this atmosphere where John the Baptist is baptizing, and then everything comes to a screeching halt, and he just calls them out right where they stand. Have you guys ever made a crash at party, maybe showing up to a place that you weren't supposed to be at? Maybe that one person invited you whenever there's 200 people there, and as you start to walk through, everybody's kind of looking at you like, who's this guy? Nobody knows who he is. Just imagine that times like a thousand here. Everything came to a screeching halt, and John the Baptist called them out for what they were. The Pharisees and Sadducees weren't there to congratulate people. They weren't there to celebrate. They were there to judge and condemn, convict. And John called them out for what they were. So we've gotten quite a bit of background on the Pharisees. Let's continue throughout Scripture to take a look at Christ's ministry and how he would engage with the Pharisees. We're going to be talking about the failures of the Pharisees, and there's three of them. The first one, an example in Scripture, is over-elaborating on the law. The Pharisees over-elaborated on the law. 
Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 15, if you would. I'll give you a moment. We're going to start in verse 1. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But I say to you, if anyone tells his father and mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God. He need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy to you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. They were desiring application so much that they would overextend, they would over-elaborate. So in this particular passage, the Pharisees are challenging Jesus and his disciples and asking why his disciples are not washing before they eat. Now, in Old Testament law, in Exodus 30, 18 through 22, we can see that Aaron and the priests were required to wash themselves before giving an offering. However, the Pharisees developed this law, this oral law, this human tradition, that every single Israelite is to wash themselves before they eat. Not only that, but they challenged Jesus and his disciples as to why they're not doing it. So they developed a human tradition, an oral law, and then they're pushing it onto other people, and they're wondering why Jesus is not following it. The journey from Jerusalem was 90 miles. This isn't a across-the-block stroll. These Pharisees were intent on engaging Jesus, and they traveled 90 miles to do so. I recently went on a hike that's about 12 or 13 miles. I was sore for two days. So they traveled 90 miles to tell Jesus and his disciples, Hey, bros, you need to wash your hands. How preposterous is that? They over-elaborate on the law. They were making an idol out of their oral law. Another example of over-elaboration or over-extending is Matthew 9-11. Jesus replies to sinners and tax collectors. The Pharisees challenge why Jesus is sitting with them. See, the Pharisees had developed a law that said, We're not going to share a table with people that have different beliefs than us. Because they adhered to the law of the Old Testament, the dietary restrictions. And they didn't want their culture infringed upon. So they wouldn't even share a table with somebody that was a different culture than their own. So what's the application for us? Do not make doctrine out of the gray areas. Do not make doctrine out of the gray areas. A few examples of this, things that we can't be uncertain on or can't be certain on would be don't ever, ever drink. If you drink, you have a sip of wine. You're committing a horrible sin. Luke 7, 33-34, Jesus addresses uh, people and he says that he was eating and drinking. And he meant drinking wine because later on he references, don't be a drunkard, which means that he partook in wine as well. So how can we say you can never drink if Christ himself partook? Obviously, Scripture says don't be a drunkard, don't be drunk, don't be slurring your speech, don't make a habit of it, don't look like an idiot. You know, Scripture is really clear on that as far as drinking goes. But however to say you can never have a sip of wine is wrong. Another one would be only one style of worship. So if you don't play with instruments, then you're committing a blasphemy. It's terrible before God. Or you can only have an organ, or you can have no instruments. Psalm 150 says that we are to worship God with instruments. So how can you say we're not? I mean, I understand that this is more of a preference thing, but whenever you push it out as law, you're not honoring God. 
Get baptized here is another one. To get baptized in our church is the only real true baptism. That's not what baptism represents. They're making an idol out of the law that we're elaborating in. There is a time to die on the hill, so to speak. There is times whenever we need to take a stand against blatant heresies. For instance, if someone said Christ didn't really die on the cross, right? Or maybe they said he didn't really, uh, he wasn't really resurrected, right? Well, of course, those are times that we need to have a stand, but not in the gray areas. Application for you may be different for somebody else. So, for instance, whenever Scripture talks about not being a drunkard, if you have a problem with drinking, clearly steer clear of drinking. If you uh, overindulge, so to speak. So application is different for different people. We all have different strides. We all struggle uh, with different areas. Each one of us is an individual of God's creation. So we need, whenever uh, God's, God's word is so robust and applies to so many different situations, your interpretation of a gray area might be different than somebody else's. And we need to extend grace in that. If we make laws out of everything, if we're like the Pharisees, where we cross all the T's, dot all the I's, always derive application, then we're being bound by the law and we forget what grace is all about, right? Rely on grace. What's funny is the Pharisees in particular couldn't follow the laws and the burdens that they set on other people, which made them hypocrites. Over-elaborating on the law is the first failure of the Pharisees. Second failure, focus on outward appearances rather than the heart. They focused on the outward appearances rather than the heart. Jesus always dealt with the intention of the heart whenever he was speaking on the law. Jesus would often say, you have heard it said, but I say to you. You have heard it said, you shall not murder. But I say to you, if you look upon your brother in anger, you are liable for judgment. I say to you, you shall not commit adultery, but if you look upon a woman with lustful intent, you have already committed the act in your heart. He also said, do not be like this. So whenever you're performing an action, don't be like this. When you fast, don't be gloomy and disfigure your face. Rather, keep yourself kept. Keep yourself looking nice. Otherwise, you're receiving your reward from other individuals giving you sympathy. It's something between you and God, not something to be drawn for sympathy. When you pray, don't pray on the corners where everyone sees you. Rather pray in closets in secret where your Father hears you. If you act this way, like the Pharisees, then you've received your reward. And that's devastating. Because what more God has to offer you than sympathy from others. Do you think he was talking about the Pharisees? Or do you think maybe he was talking about other individuals? I personally think he's talking about the Pharisees. Let's go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 23. I'll give you a second to turn there. Start at verse 1. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their, and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi. So the Pharisees loved this attention. They loved it. So they were focused on outward appearances and looking clean before others and seeking the approval of others, but their hearts were far from God. Matthew chapter 23, 27 through 28, Jesus says, Outwardly you appear as whitewashed tombs, but on the inside you're full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. 
So they were having a facade. They wanted to look good in front of others, but their hearts were far from God. Application for us, focus on the intentions of the heart, not outward appearances. Not, not outward appearances. Focus on the intentions of the heart, not our outward appearances. It's sad to say that we can see this in our day-to-day -day lives where people are so focused on the outward appearances that they start to strive away from God. Recently, I had a very good friend of mine tell me that he was going to go through divorce. And I tell you guys, it's devastating to me whenever I hear that news. Especially because two or three weeks prior to whenever he told me that, I saw them out and about, and they were just so happy again. They were so joyous. They seemed so uplifted by one another, hugging and kissing. They had a young kid over there. Everything just looked great. But then whenever he told me this, I said, how can that be? I just saw you guys look so happy. And he said, well, we can put on a show, can't we? It's devastating. He was more worried about what other people viewed them than really uh, their marriage. How do people view our marriage rather than how healthy is our marriage? We see this when pastors fall whenever they strive after financial gain. In the spotlight, they look all clean and wonderful, but in secret, they perform terrible sins. Striving after women that are not their wives, we see pastors fall all the time. It happens whenever we say we are fine, whenever we're not. You ever ask somebody ask that question, like, how are you doing? How's your week going? Fine. Well, of course you're not fine. We need to be open and transparent with one another because we need to encourage and uplift one another. Keeping these things a secret, uh, first of all, do not honor God, and they start to rot us from within. We need to be honest with ourselves, look at our hearts, not focus on the outward appearances. Listen to me. Inward thoughts and intentions always become outward appearances. It always happens eventually. So if you are focused on the outward appearance, but your intentions of your heart are wrong, eventually it will be made apparent to everybody else. And besides that, are, are we so foolish to think that whenever we get to the end of everything, God's going to be pleased with that? I fooled everybody. Of course not. Of course not. Focus on the intent of your heart. Transform now. Focus on the intentions of the heart, not the side. The first failure is over-elaboration of the law. The second failure is focusing on outward appearances rather than the heart. The third failure is they refuse to be convinced for change. They refuse to be convinced for change. Let's pick back up in Matthew chapter 12. I'm going to start in verse 22. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. The people were amazed at seeing what Christ was doing. And they said, Can this be the son of David, the one we have been waiting for? Is it the son of David? And the Pharisees said, He cast out demons by the authority of demons. How preposterous and foolish is that? They were not willing to believe uh, that he was the Christ, the Messiah. Uh, over their beliefs. So essentially they said, well, demons cast out demons. Of course, Jesus confronts them and says, what kingdom divided against itself will stand? Matthew 12, 28, a little bit later, they demand a sign from Christ. They demand a sign. Of course, they didn't really want to see a sign. They just wanted to control Christ. They wanted to see, say, will you bend to my will? Will you lift this building up? Will you make an earthquake happen? We want to see that we have some control over this. You bend to us, we don't bend to you. They could have just followed them and saw all the signs they needed. 
You know, just follow Jesus for a week and see all these miracles being performed and all these people he's engaging. You would clearly know that he is the Messiah. He is the coming Christ. Jesus answered every question, arose to every challenge, and they sought to kill him for it. Their minds could not be changed. They could not be persuaded. They refused to be humble. A good friend of mine, Graham, and I go out to coffee about once, twice a month sometimes. We have these discussions, and I remember I was sitting across from him, and I was telling him a professor that I had in college used to tell me that underwater welders would make multi-millions a year. So it's kind of like a joke. So whenever we're in class, we don't want to learn about a professional at all. This is terrible. He'd say, you could be an underwater welder. You'd be out in three years. You'd be great. So I told Graham this story. I said, my professor used to tell me this. Well, what's Graham do? He was interested, so he's like, I want to check what the real salary is. So he checks it, and they make sixty dollars to $80,000 a year. So I'm going around telling everybody, multi-millions of dollars, I look like an idiot. Obviously, I was embarrassed. But at the same time, I needed that correction. How many times do you think I told that story after? Do you think I was still, after I was corrected, after I knew the truth, I was going out saying, they make multi-millions a year. Of course not. It has changed. My perception has changed. In the same manner, we need to be willing to listen to others. The application, be open to change and growth that honors God and the scripture. Be open to change and growth. Be willing to give someone else a seat at the table. When did we become so sensitive about talking about this stuff? If someone challenges your view or if you guys want to grow together, immediately we are, you know, uh, dishonored or, or we think, oh man, that, that's terrible that, that you think that of me. We need to be able to talk about these things. We need to be able to grow together. We need to not be so sensitive. Discussing theological questions is fruitful when it's done in humility. When it's done in humility. If you can extend somebody grace and they can do the same to you. Times I have personally grown the most is whenever I've given someone a seat at the table, so to speak. I've let someone challenge my view on scripture. We're all eager to grow, right? It's like Ryan said, I want to say it's either last week or the week before. We need to think the best of one another, right? Especially our church, we need to think the best of one another. So if someone has discussions with you, don't take it as an offensive attack on yourself, but rather they desire to see you grow, and they probably want that reciprocated. I know I want to grow more. Do you guys want to grow more? And we need to be willing to give others a seat at the table. We need to be able to discuss these things. If you are willing to give them a seat, they will be willing to give you a seat as well. And it keeps going round and round and continues to grow. To examine the three failures of the Pharisees over elaboration on the law, focusing on outward appearances rather than the heart, and your refusal to be convinced or changed. But what did Jesus actually think of the Pharisees? We care what Christ thinks about people, right? We care what Jesus thinks about people. He said that they were unsuitable to teach. Matthew 16, 6 through 12, he said, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. His disciples began to understand this. Beware of their teaching. Beware of their teaching. They are unsuitable to teach. They were hopeless and blind guides. Matthew 15, 10 through 14. Jesus said, let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind leads the blind, both will fall into the pit. Much like uh, the first chapter of Romans, he said, God said, let them alone. Just leave them to do their major things. Let them do what should not be done. They produce no fruit, Matthew chapter 21, 43 through 45. The kingdom will be taken away from the Pharisees and given to those that produce fruit. All their adherence to the law and their moral tradition and human traditions and it produced no fruit. Nothing. Nothing fruitful. 
And Jesus outright condemned them. If you really want to see what Jesus thought of the Pharisees, Matthew chapter 23, 14 through 36. Go ahead and write that down and read that in your own time. Run a little short on time, not much, too much. But he gives them several woes. He calls them out for what they really are. It is certainly clear that Jesus was not a fan of the Pharisees. Their way was fruitless for them, for others, and it didn't honor God. You may be thinking, that's great, Jack, but where is the application for us? The Pharisees are bad, we understand that, but what can we pull from this? Well, the simple way to say it is, don't be like the Pharisees. Pretty simple, right? Don't be like the Pharisees. Scripture is our guide, and often Scripture points us to the things that we should be doing, but it also points us to the things that we should not do as well as people we should follow and people we shouldn't follow. And a very good friend of mine that gave a best man's speech for his older brother, one of the best speeches I ever heard, but he talked about his brother going before him, and his brother did a lot of things, and his brother just followed in his footsteps, so if his brother chose a horrific action that ended in something terrible, his younger brother's like, I avoided that, but if it was something good, then I pursued it. As such, Scripture can be our guide as well. We can absorb the lessons and good from it, while avoiding the failures of those that went before us. Pay attention to the Pharisees. Do not be like them. Be humble. Continue to grow. Do not be arrogant. Do not force the gray areas onto people. Everybody here is eager to grow closer to Christ. We need to be humble and kind towards one another, and we need to be willing to give people a seat at the table and talk about these issues so that we can grow. I'll go ahead and call up the worship team as they start to come up. For those that are Christians, uh, what we can learn from the Pharisees is very simple, very simply, be submissive to Christ. Be submissive to Christ. Do not believe in your own ability to be perfect, rather than rely on the grace of Christ. Christ is the sacrifice, and he is certainly enough for us. If you adhere to the law, then you will be judged by it. For those that have not yet put their faith in Christ, I don't presume to know everybody here. I know we've had a lot of new faces coming in lately. Um, do not believe in your ability to be a good person. Scripture says that there is none righteous, not one. The Pharisees missed Jesus whenever he was right in front of them. He was right there. He was at an arm's length, and they refused him the entire time. God sometimes will give you a miracle to get you to believe. He'll do something wonderful in your life. But sometimes, and we see it in Scripture, God will send a prophet or a messenger or a friend or a brother to tell you, hey, you need something. You need Christ. You need to repent. Don't be like the Pharisees, a shorter length of never engaging with Christ. Rather, reach out and touch him and know that you can be healed. Receive salvation. Receive the forgiveness of sins. Reach out and touch Jesus and you will be healed. Let's go ahead and stand and get ready for worship. Heavenly Father, just please guide us, uh, just even in this coming week. For those that are adhering to human traditions, I pray that you begin to open their eyes and they can see your grace and how wonderful it is. Father, guide us on the right path. Let Scripture be your guide. Father, we're going to sing to you that Christ is enough for us. And I pray that as we sing this, we mean the lyrics. Christ is certainly enough for us. We rely on him and we're grateful for his sacrifice. With these things, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.